The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. All right, all right. Church, it's good to be together. Last day in the series Metamorphosis and last day in the book of Colossians. If you haven't been with us the whole time or if you haven't noticed, we have been in the book of Colossians for the last couple months and we tried something a little bit different. We tried doing two different series through the book. And so chapters 1 and 2 of Colossians, there's four chapters. In the first two chapters, we went through our series, Secrets to a Satisfied Life, and kind of our theme throughout that series was Christ is enough, and understanding that truth that Christ is enough. We moved into chapters 3 and 4, into our series, Metamorphosis, emphasizing the idea of transformation, that those truths lead us to transformation. And so we're going to finish up today in chapter 4. I'm going to read the passage in a minute, but... I want to kind of review just everything we've covered just for a minute to kind of jog our memories and give us kind of a help, help that stuff come back so we have that in our minds as we're thinking through today. And I want to really uh, finish strong today and close out the series on a good note. So when uh, back at the beginning of the series, we kind of just started by um, just looking at the context of the book of Colossians. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul, who we know pretty well. Um, and he wrote it to a church that he had never met in the city of Colossae, Colossae, however you want to say it. There's probably a right way. It's, it's cool, though. Um, Epaphras is a guy who we're going to talk about today, probably started the church in Colossians. But then he is most likely visiting Paul, who Paul is in the city of Rome. There, just a heads up, there's going to be so much information. My mouth is just not going to stop moving today. So uh, just, just to give you guys a heads up on that, it might get annoying. I don't know. But Paul is in the city of Rome, what is known as his first imprisonment, okay? He's under house arrest, and Epaphras goes and visits Paul and lets him know everything that's going on in the Colossian church. And so it's from then that Paul pens this letter to the Colossians. In it, in the first two chapters especially, he is exalting the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus in all things, that there were some false teachers coming into the Colossian church and kind of, um, kind of, feeding in some poison, some false doctrine that was breeding a little bit of confusion in the church. And so Paul kind of just uh, a roundabout way by just exalting the the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus just kind of um, counters those lies. And so in the first week, we saw that Christ is enough for our growth, for our spiritual maturity. The essence is not just doing these things and behavior modification. It is Jesus who is the one who grows us and transforms us into the same image. And then we look the next week at that Christ is enough for our praise, that no matter what we're going through, no matter what's going on, we have sufficient means to praise God at all times for everything he is and everything he's done because he is enough. And then the next week we looked at Christ is enough for our ministry, that we all have the ministry of sharing the gospel and in doing so, we are not um, ministering simply a religion. We're not peddling some just uh, religious duties and everything, but Jesus is the essence of our ministry, that we are communicating and loving people with the love of Jesus and telling them about Jesus, his life, death, burial, resurrection. Christ is enough for our ministry and what we're doing here today. It's got to be about Jesus because that's where all the power is. And then we saw the next week that Christ is enough for our wholeness where Paul has that verse that I love so much where he says, and you are complete in him in Jesus, who is the head of all principality and power. And so whatever the world tells us, and as our, I don't know about you, but our flesh just constantly nagging us and telling us, hey, you need this to be whole. You need this to feel complete. And Paul just says, hey, Jesus, you're complete in him. 
He is all the identity. He is all that you need. And then we finished up our series, Secrets to a Satisfied Life, seeing that Christ is enough for our religion. That if you take Christianity and you remove Jesus or you get Jesus wrong, which is many cults today, they have a very similar thing, but they get Jesus a little off. It's a different Jesus. If you take Jesus out of what we're doing, we don't have anything, church. And I hope you understand that sitting in here today, that your, my, my desire and our hope is that you're here because you want Jesus, not to feel like you're religious, not to feel like you're uh, completing some kind of duty, um, or for any other reason than, than that, that just to know him and become like him. And then from there, having those truths, understanding those realities, we moved into chapters 3 and 4, where Paul starts by saying, okay, if you have been risen with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your affection, your desire on things above, not the things on the earth. And so we looked that first week at a transformed soul, that God desires to get the core, the innermost part of us. And from there, we can move into, as we did the next week, into a transformed lifestyle. That's when the behavior comes. That's when the thoughts and the, and the ways we talk and the ways we live our lives, that is transformed to become more and more like Jesus. And then from there, we moved into transformed relationships and transformed family, um, the different ways that we engage and interact with each other. And then from there, we looked at uh, two weeks ago with Nick, uh, love that we looked at um, a transformed work ethic. That whether you are in here and you uh, think of your work as very important or as just to get a paycheck, wherever you are on that spectrum, our work has purpose. Not because of what the world gives to it, but because we do it unto the glory of God. And I love how Nick ended and he said, our work is to be worship to God. That he is worthy of us giving everything we have to the work. And he created us to work. It is not an evil thing. It is not a bad thing. Sometimes it is hard because of the reality of sin. But we were created to work, and so we do that to his glory, a transformed work ethic. And then last week, we kind of left off by looking at a transformed speech, that the gospel touches our, the ways we communicate. It touches the words that we say and the ways that we talk to each other. And today, we're going to wrap everything up by looking at a transformed church, a transformed church. I'm not going to have you stand because it's a lot to read this morning. I'm going to try to go through it, but if you are visiting, if this is your first time here, man, we just want you to know that we are so glad you're here. Uh, we exist to reach people and connect people to God, um, and as we seek Him together, and uh, on your way in, you should have got uh, what we call our service programs. I don't have one up here with me, but um, from the ushers at the door, and in there, there's kind of an outline that you can use to uh, follow along with everything I'm talking about today. I have my orange cup somewhere, guys. Can you bring that up? Because I am going to get pretty bad dry mouth up here. Um, it's already starting. I'm like, oh no, thank you, Alan. Um, right, and in, this, in the left hand of that, thanks, bro. In the left hand of that, there's a thing called, we call our connection card. If you could fill that out, that would be such a blessing. That just helps us connect with you and know your name. And before you leave here today, I would love to personally meet you um, and just get to know you a little bit. So with that being said, if you are in Colossians 4, I hope you have your Bibles. If you don't, if you have a phone, uh, the screens are going to be insufficient today. I want you guys to see and follow along. So pull out Colossians 4. I'm going to start in verse 7 and read down through verse 18. Paul has just finished exhorting the Colossians to let their speech be seasoned with grace. Hey, pray for me that I may clearly communicate the gospel. And it's with that that he begins to kind of wrap up his letter and land the plane. And he says, as to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant, 
and fellow bondservant in the Lord will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, not the Jesus that we worship, the Jesus who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, which means they were Jews, the, the ones that he's referring to. And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Stay with me, church. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis, which we're going to talk about those cities a little bit. Um, they were about 10 miles from the city of Colossae, and they were pretty associated with each other. Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. I love the names of Scripture. Don't you all just want to name your next child Demas? <laughs> love it. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and you for your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have been received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Our theme today is this, is we're going to walk through this passage that uh, we get a little glimpse into how the church functioned back um, when it was just getting started and we get to see kind of the different roles that people played. Um, and it's going to, I believe that God's got something in it for us. And um, our theme today is this, that as the church of Jesus Christ today, as Fresno Church, we are committed to each other in the advancement of God's kingdom. It's very simple, but we're going to see the love and unity and commitment that joined these people together as they were on mission, church. They were on mission to advance the kingdom of God as his spirit worked through them. So we are committed to each other, Fresno Church. We love, we sacrifice, we care for one another as we advance the kingdom of God together. I'm going to pray, and then we will move forward. Father, um, God, I just acknowledge your presence here today, Lord. You are not uh, the God of our imagination, the God that we want you to be in our flesh, Lord. You are the God who is so real and so present and so far above all that we could comprehend or see, but yet, Lord, you have revealed yourself to finite, broken creatures like us today. And so, God, may we stand humbly before your word, God, acknowledging your sufficiency in all things, your supremacy, your sovereignty over us. And, Lord, would you cause us to understand your word today, Lord, that we might know you more and live in alignment with your desire. God, I pray for Fresno Church, Lord. I pray for my brothers and sisters that, God, you would draw us closer to you, that you would cause us to stand firm and perfect in all uh, the, your will, Lord, that we would be fully assured of your will as we live. God, I thank you. Um, may you speak, God. Keep me from error. In Jesus' name, amen. So we read a passage like that we just read, and uh, we don't often talk about these passages, right? What in the world do you do with a list of names like that, right? It's like, what are we even going to talk about? Well, we have to start from the place, church, that we believe what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, where it says, and all scripture is inspired, literally, theanustos, breathed out 
by God and is profitable. That we starve from healthiness. And so when we come to verses like this, we can easily begin to uh, disconnect it from the rest of Scripture that we like, the other verses that we like, and say, this has no relevance to me. And so I feel like there's a need, and this is a good opportunity before we jump into unpacking these verses, to address the way that we look at our Bible in the first place. And church, I really want to encourage you right now, maybe we don't do this enough, but man, I hope that you're reading your Bible. I hope that you are consistently and thoroughly reading through Scripture on a day-to-day basis. But what can happen is that we assume that the Bible is simply a spiritual book, and it is. It is breathed out by God. It is His words to us, right? And, it, and we expect to get something out of it, right? That it's, it's speaking directly to me. And in a sense, yes, it is. But what can happen is that we as Christians, we look at the Bible and say, well, this is God's book to me. He wrote it to me. So it's speaking to me. And so through, through our 21st century American lens, we look at passages and we maybe we'll flip through Scripture and I don't know where to read and bam, okay. And Noah built an ark. You know, and so, oh, God's speaking to me. I need to, like, build an ark. And, and that's an extreme example that I hope none of us would take. But we do that in small ways when it comes to well, more well-known passages like Philippians 4.13, where we're like, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we look at that through a 21st American lens, and, oh, this is speaking to me, right? Forgetting the rest of Philippians that Paul is actually writing the letter to directly, There's a context in which that verse sits, and we take that verse to mean whatever we want it to mean. And so I want to propose to you a better, more healthy way of reading Scripture. And I heard this from, um, I forget her name, but she, uh, she proposed this idea, and I love it. The idea of reading the Word of God like you're investing in a savings account. That when you approach Scripture, you don't have to understand everything that it means, and you don't have to, um, like, and I want to be careful here because this gets a little muddy and there's a fine line to walk there because Scripture does apply to us. That's why we're here. That's why I'm preaching it. But that when we come to Scripture, we don't need to be like, okay, there's got to be something I can do today based off this passage I just read, right? And it's hard when we get to passages like temple measurements and, you know, obscure laws and, um, like, construction blueprints. I'm like, what do you do with this, God? And I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I don't know. I don't know, but when you look at Scripture and when you read Scripture consistently and thoroughly throughout day to day, day in and day out, when you look at it as if like you were investing in a savings account, right? You, you, you put money into a savings account not because you're going to use it right then, right? Because you're going to use it later. That when you read Scripture, you view it through faith as a window to know God. We read Scripture to know our God. Not to just, you know, find a little thing that's going to make me feel good. Not to, not simply as an instruction manual. It is profitable for instruction in righteousness. But it's not, that is not all it is. We read scripture primarily to know our God. And so when you're reading it, you're trusting God and saying, God, I may not understand what I'm reading. But I trust that you're going to use it in my life. And I will say personally that as God allowed me to start reading the Bible consistently as like a young teenager, man, it maybe didn't profit me that much then, I remember just being confused, and my mind was blown, and some of the things you read in Genesis, you're like, why is this in the Bible? And I remember asking my dad, like, dad, what is circumcision? And, you know, right? And that was fun. Um, Yeah. Uh, But when you read scripture, I'm so glad that I started reading then, and I've continued, because now, oh, it's so rich to me, that I can read the Bible, and there's so much familiarity 
There's so much context. I'm able to tie things together. And now when I approach it, each time I read it, I have a deeper understanding and a deeper understanding. And, I, and I'm able to know God in that way. And I'm able to experience Him in that way. And maybe it's not um, that, like this profound experience every time you read it. But when you look at it, and we look at passages like today where it's a list of names, we read it and we say, okay, God, I'm going to save this. Would you use this? And, 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 and I would also encourage you to make, give yourself to some, some study maybe, not just simply reading the word and saying, well, okay, I'm done. I read it. But man, who is this and what's going on? And so um, I'm just going to be honest. From the outset, as we get into this, it's going to feel much more like a class lecture than it will like a sermon. And I encourage you to have something to write on because I'm going to be like just, just spewing a bunch of stuff here. So, the purpose of what we're going to study today is not just to gain more facts, church, but to gain an ability to understand what we are reading and thus see God at work in the people of Scripture. It helps us to have a more holistic understanding of Scripture and how it ties together. It is the story of real-life people living real lives and indeed applies to our lives today. And I think um, we're not going to be disappointed in today. I think there's some rich things that I can't wait to get to. So with that being said, as we look at this passage, um, we see that Paul did not work alone. We talk a lot about Paul, and so we should. He was greatly used by God, wrote nearly two-thirds of the New Testament. Um, But when we look at passages like this, we realize, man, he wasn't alone. He had many people who he calls his fellow workers, and they were on this mission together. And the first one we see is Tychicus. Everybody say Tychicus. Awesome. I'm not going to say these names right, but I like the way I say them better than they actually sound. So you're going to learn the hunter pronunciation today. You can correct me later. Verse 7, Paul says, he finishes talking up. He says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant of the Lord, will bring you information. For I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And so before we talk about Tychicus, notice what Paul's saying here. What he is saying is implying that the Colossians care about him and want to know what's going on. Because Paul's saying, hey, before he like addresses a lot of things, he just says, hey, I'm sending Tychicus, he'll tell you everything that's going on here. Which implies that it wasn't just a one-way street. It's not this, just this apostle cared for the Colossians. But that we see this church probably had a concern for this dear apostle, even though they've never met They know of Paul, and Paul knows of them, and they care. And so Paul's like, look, I'm going to send Tychicus to you. He's going to, and he's also going to send him with Onesimus. They're going to go together to Colossae to tell the Colossians, hey, here's everything that's going on with Paul. And so with Tychicus, we see his name means faithful. And in the book of Acts, we have recorded for us three missionary journeys that the apostle Paul took um, in the early church, right? And so in the middle of the third missionary journey, um, Paul is leaving... um, I need to go back and check what the city is. But he had, he's got like this group of disciples that's following him, and Tychicus is among them. Aristarchus is another guy we're going to see. And so you see um, him mentioned five times in Scripture, and four times he is either being sent by Paul or he is relaying information from one party to another. And so you just see his role seem to be just like a messenger in the early church, that as you look through and you'll see his name when you're reading through the letters of Paul, he's just available to be used by Paul to, to go here and deliver this message and, and, and tell people about this and communicate this. And so we see Tychicus. Next, let's look at Onesimus. We talked about Onesimus two weeks ago. And so with Tychicus and with him, Onesimus, verse 9, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Onesimus' names mean, Onesimus's name means 
profitable and useful. And just to mention as well, I'm going to be referring to the book of Philemon a little bit because Philemon and Colossians are very closely tied together, as I think Nick mentioned two weeks ago. And also 2 Timothy, which is the last letter that Paul wrote uh, that we have recorded in Scripture. So I say that because you learn more about this character Onesimus in the book of Philemon. And so I'd encourage you to go read that. We learned that he was Philemon's slave. Uh, Philemon was a prominent member in the church of Colossae, and the church met in his house. And so Onesimus, most likely, uh, as we understand it, ran away and then somehow gets connected with Paul. And so when um, Paul is writing to Philemon, he refers to Onesimus as my child begotten in my imprisonment. So whether they met in prison or Onesimus just came across only Paul who was in prison, it ends up Onesimus gives his life to Jesus and gives his life to the ministry. And Paul refers to him as our faithful and beloved brother. And in Philemon, it's kind of cool. He mentions, he says, hey, he is useful to me as he was not you before, and kind of plays off of Onesimus' name a little bit. So we see Onesimus, okay? Tychicus, Onesimus. Next is Aristarchus. Everybody say Aristarchus. All right, come on. Stay with me here, church. We're going to do this. We're going to get through this. And verse 10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. Aristarchus' name means the best ruler. And just like Tychicus in Acts chapter 20 is mentioned in that group of disciples that's following Paul, Aristarchus is mentioned along with them. Aristarchus was from Asia, and we see him just faithful uh, throughout Paul's life, just following along Paul and ministering and working with him. In uh, Acts chapter 19, uh, just before 20, we see that, well, first Paul refers to him as my fellow prisoner, which leads me to believe that he was probably imprisoned in Rome with Aristarchus. Paul might be talking in a spiritual sense, but I believe he's referring to him in a literal sense that, hey, he's my fellow prisoner. And you see that Aristarchus is not necessarily afraid of the dangers and the suffering of the ministry life. Because in Acts 19, uh, Paul comes to Ephesus, right? And God does a mighty work. Um, There's people being healed. There's people being saved. Um, They're leaving the god Artemis, and they're worshiping Jesus. And there's this dude in Ephesus named Demetrius, right? who it makes silver shrines to the goddess Artemis. And he's like, hey, uh, he gets his business partners together, and he's like, we got to do something about Paul. This is not good. We're losing business. And, oh, forbid that Artemis, the great god, should be forsaken. And so they stir up the whole town, and they grab, not Paul, but Aristarchus, and another of Paul's traveling companions, Gaius, and they rush them into the amphitheater, most likely to do them harm. Paul wants to go in and save them, but the other brothers are like, no, 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 don't go in there. But thankfully, everything works out. Aristarchus and Gaius are okay, and they keep traveling with Paul. So you just see he's faithful, and he's not afraid to suffer um, with him. And then why is Aristarchus mentioned? A lot of the people mentioned here are simply just sending their greetings to the Colossians, which is a very simple gesture we don't think about, But we do that, don't we? Like sometimes you guys will tell me, hey, Hunter, tell your mom and dad I said hi, right? Or I'll tell you, hey, you're going to see so-and-so? Hey, tell them I said hi, right? What are we doing? What are we communicating in that? We're just simply saying, hey, I love and I care about that person and I want them to know it, right? And so it's not simply this apostle Paul that cares, but his fellow prisoner and those who are traveling they were together in this. There was a communal love for each other. And Aristarchus says, hey, let the Colossians know that I care about them, Paul. So Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus. Next, next, let's look at some maybe more well-known characters, and that is Barnabas and Mark. Verse 10, 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom he received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Now, we're going to talk about Barnabas, but he's only mentioned here to reference who Mark is, to help them know who Mark is. But because he's mentioned, I want to talk about him because we don't talk about him much, and he is a really cool character in Scripture, okay? His, first, his name is actually Joseph, but the apostles nickname him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, or literal meaning is son of rest, which tells you a little bit about his quality and character. And you see that in his life. Before we meet Paul, before we ever meet Paul, when he's Saul and he's persecuting the church, we meet Barnabas in chapter 4 of Acts. And he is like many others in that time, right when the early church is getting started and the Holy Spirit's moving in a mighty way, he has a piece of land that he just sells and he just gives the money to the apostles and gives himself to the ministry. And when Saul does get saved, right, all the believers are like, uh, this isn't right. Something's not right here. This dude was persecuting the church and now he's one of us and they're like, maybe this is a trap. And so they all keep their distance. But guess who reaches out to Paul? Barnabas. Barnabas takes a chance on Paul and reaches out and brings him into the community of believers. And man, we are all the better for it today because we have all of Paul's writings and, and you just see this, uh, this spirit of encouragement and loving people and taking a chance on people. Um, when uh, he went on Paul's first missionary journey with him as they traveled through the Mediterranean, and that's kind of where we um, meet Mark because Mark, and he's also known as John Mark, was Barnabas's cousin, and so uh, Barnabas takes along Mark, and, and we'll, we'll get to Barnabas a little bit more as we talk about Mark, because they're pretty closely related. Mark is even more interesting to me. This is a really, uh, really cool story associated with Mark. His name means a defense, and he's also known as John or John Mark, so if you're confused when you're reading scripture, John was his Hebrew name, and Mark was his Latin surname, okay? And so he is most likely the writer of the second gospel, a pretty important book in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, and then another gospel writer is also mentioned here a little later, Luke and John. Those are the four gospels, and Mark wrote the second of them. He was most likely a young man in the church and a disciple of the apostle Peter, and there's this story in Acts 11 and 12 when Peter is in prison. We had a message on this, I think, uh, like months back, but when Peter's imprisoned by Herod, the church gathers in a house to pray for him, right? Well, we come to understand that that is Mark's mom's house, okay? So you just have another association to kind of tell who is Mark. Okay, it's this guy. And the interesting thing, he is, he is Barnabas's cousin, right? And so when Barnabas and Paul go on the first missionary journey, Barnabas is like, hey, let's take my cousin Mark with us. And Paul's like, sure, let's go for it. So they go travel. But what happens is that pretty early on, Mark is like, ugh, deuces, I'm out. Like, and he deserts and he heads back home. We don't know why, but, but what happens is when Paul and Barnabas come back, and they're, ready, they're getting ready to go on their second missionary journey, Barnabas is like, hey, Paul, let's take Mark, and Paul's like, uh, no. He's not reliable. He's not faithful. He deserted us, and Acts says, you can read it, they were, they argued about this, and it was so intense that Paul and Barnabas couldn't even work together anymore. And so Barnabas is like, fine, I'm taking Mark and I'm going home to my home of Cyprus, the little island in the Mediterranean Sea. And Paul's like, fine, I'm taking Silas and we're going. And so you just get to see the humanity of these men of God that we exalt and you see so much character and such good qualities in them. And then they just blow it and they get in this huge fight and they can't even work together. 
They can't even work together. But this is where it gets really cool because Mark is mentioned in Colossians. This is why, this is one of those moments where it's so beautiful, where this means so much more than just a name. Because Colossians, when, when Paul refers to Mark, he says in the end of verse 11, he talks about, hey, Barnabas' cousin Mark and this guy Justice, which we're going to talk about. And he says, they have proved to be an encouragement to me. This is what he, Paul says about Mark, the one he didn't want to take with him, the whole reason that the argument went down. And then when we go to 2 Timothy, the end of Paul's life, right? He's talking to Timothy and he says, okay, Timothy, hey, when you come to me, pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. And so Paul is forwarding his, the, the greetings of Mark, who apparently he had association with, and we see that kind of weaved into the, the background of Scripture that these two men had reconciliation at some point, and they made up, and now they're doing ministry again together. And I love this because this is the power of God. The story of Scripture is not how great Paul and Barnabas and these other guys were. It's the story of how great God is in the midst of, of messy, sinful people. And we get to see that kind of behind the scenes a little bit in the story of Paul and Barnabas and Mark. And we see them partnering together. And he's a fellow worker in the gospel. And, and I'm speculating at this point when Paul says, hey, Mark, about whom he received instructions— if he comes to you, welcome him. We don't really know what that's talking about. I have a theory that they, that this was kind of known in the church, what went down between Paul and Barnabas. They were kind of prominent members in the church, and so this whole argument thing and why it happened because Mark deserted and Paul, I have a theory that maybe they heard that, and so Paul says, hey, about whom you receive instructions, when he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome, Mark. Welcome. He's a fellow worker. He's one of us. And so this really cool story that you get to see there. So Barnabas and Mark. Now let's talk about justice. Uh, he is one that we know very little about. Um, when you're reading scripture, just to be aware, when you're reading through the book of Acts, there are three guys named Justice mentioned. The first is in the beginning of Acts. I don't have time to get in that story, but dude's got like three names and you don't even, you're like, so, but his, his, the, it ends up being Justice, okay? So that's one. And then the other one, the other Justice is um, Paul stays with, his name is Titius Justice, and Paul stays with him in the city of Corinth when he's there. And then this Justice, we don't really know, but we know he's a Hebrew, he's a Jew. And what we do know about him is that Paul says, hey, he's an encouragement to me. He's an encouragement to me. And so we see these partners that Paul had. Some were Jews, but most of them were probably Gentiles because when he's referring to, I believe, Mark and maybe Barnabas and Justice, he says, hey, these are the only fellow workers that I have that are actually of the circumcision, which means they were Jews and Hebrews. Okay, so Justice. Next, Epaphras. You still with me? We good? All right, all right, come on. Epaphras, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. So he's like, hey, guys. Your boy is here, Epaphras. He says hi. He says what's up. He got here safe. We're good. He lets you know that he's um, doing all right. But this is what Paul says about Epaphras. I love this. He is always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify of him. Paul's like, let me praise this boy for a minute. I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. His name, Epaphras, literally means lovely. That's what his name means. That's pretty cool. And so, like we said before, he most likely started the church in 
Colossae. Um, in chapter one of Colossians, which we already looked at weeks ago, he says, um, man, I, we've heard of your faith, Colossians. Verse seven, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved bondservant who is faithful servant of Jesus Christ on our behalf, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. Okay, so you see Epaphras was a prominent um, man in the Colossian church, and what we know most about him is that he deeply cared for this body of believers. That he, what marks him is his earnest prayer for them. And not just general prayer, but look what Paul says he's praying. That you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, this is kind of hard, but does that sound familiar at all? Because when we go back to the end of chapter one, when we talked about how Christ is enough for our ministry, what does Paul say that he is laboring abundantly as God works through him? What is the end he's hoping to accomplish? That I may present every man perfect in Christ. And so we see here that Epaphras is praying for the same end, that we would be fully mature. That word perfect refers to this idea of completion, that we would be complete, just like Paul already says we spiritually are in Christ, that we are complete in him. And Paul says, man, I want you to stand firm in that. I want you to grow into the full maturity of Christ. And Epaphras is praying unto that end that, man, the Colossians, you wouldn't be, you know, blown around by all this false doctrine and what you hear here and you know, you wouldn't be led astray by the world, but that you would stand in the grace you've received. And church, man, I want to pray this for you. I want to be, I want God to work in me so that I would pray this over you consistently. And that, man, by God's grace, we would pray this for each other, that we would seek to see each other grow in the Lord and not be like, oh man, I'm better, or, you know, and, and having this subconscious battle in our head, like, I'm doing pretty well, I'm better than so-and-so. But man, that we would pray for each other, and we'd love each other, and we'd seek each other's well-being, that we were, we're all on mission to grow into the fullness of who Jesus is. That's where God's taking us, church. I hope we're going there as well. <laughs> so we see Epaphras, all right? Moving on, two more interesting characters, Luke and Demas. Luke and Demas, okay? Verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Luke's name means light-giving, and he is the one who wrote the book of Luke, a third gospel, and he also wrote the book of Acts. So when you're reading your Bible, if you skip John, you go from Matthew, Mark, Luke to Acts, they kind of flow right into each other. And as you're reading through Acts, it's interesting to note the pronouns that are used because sometimes Luke was with Paul a lot. He traveled with him, right? He's a, he's a doctor. Paul calls him the beloved physician, right? He traveled with Paul and probably minister to his needs, but when you, um, when you notice the pronouns, Paul, Luke will sometimes use, and we went, and we did, but then other times you see that maybe Luke is not with Paul because he says, and he went, and they went, so it's just something to, to, to notice as you're reading through the book of Acts to help you understand that a little better, um, and you just see this, this brother, he's kind of just behind the scenes, kind of just sits back. It's funny to note that he's a doctor who travels with Paul, who's healing everybody, <laughs> right? But he seems to be okay with that. He just, he's faithful. We see him in 2 Timothy just sticking with Paul to the very end. Uh, in 2 Timothy, it's, um, Paul is what it, in, in what is known as the second imprisonment, which was not the house arrest in Rome that he's writing Colossians from. The second imprisonment was a dark, lonely dungeon cell where Paul eventually is beheaded, and that's the end for him. 
But he says this. He says, hey, so-and-so has gone here. I, I sent so-and-so there. Only Luke is with me. And so you just see this man who's just faithful, and he's just present, and he's just there, and he's just enduring. And he went through stuff with Paul. As you read the book of Acts, some of the pronouns, when he says we, they're like, oh, wow, they did that together. It wasn't just Paul. Um, and so, man, Luke, just an example of faithfulness and endurance and, and, and perseverance. If he is our example of that, Demas is the opposite. Demas is the example of unfaithfulness. Look what Paul says. In, in, in Colossians, Paul just simply mentions his name as, hey, Demas says hi, right? In Philemon, Paul refers to him as my fellow worker, okay? We don't know a whole lot about Demas um, there, but in 2 Timothy, this is what Paul says about Demas. Right before he mentions Luke is with me, he says in verse 10, 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And so you see this man that at one time was with Paul, that worked with him, that ministered the gospel to others, that traveled with him and probably suffered with him. He didn't make it. He didn't endure. And man, church, I want to... I this is so huge because one of the most important marks of our faith is that it endures. There's no point at which we throw in the towel as we're like, okay, I'm done. I've had enough. And I don't know, some of you have been through some crazy stuff, more than me, but if you've been through that and I've felt many times, I'm just like, God, I am so done. I am so done. I don't know how to keep going, right? And we don't know why Demas left, but this is what Paul says the reason is, having loved this present world. Demas' name means governor of the people, so we can maybe speculate that maybe he got some position or something, or he was born into like a, a family of prominence, and, you know, there was something in Thessalonica where he went, you know, whatever. But we hear also the familiar voice of, of, of John when he writes his epistle, 1 John, where he says, hey, don't love the world or the things in the world, because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not of God, it's not of the Father, but is of the world, and it's going to pass away. So we see these two contrasting characters put together. Luke, an example of faithfulness and, and, and just endurance, and then Demas, who he didn't make it. And may that give us just a sober, a soberness um, in our faith, church, okay? All right, we're getting to the end here. We're getting to the end. Paul kind of turns his attention in verse 15, and he says, hey, greet the brothers who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, Colossians, have it also read in the church of Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. All right, so Laodicea was about 10 miles from Colossae and Hierapolis as well. So Paul is addressing the Colossians, but he says, hey, Colossians, greet the brothers who are in Laodicea. And you just see a little picture of this, this unity and this fellowship that they shared, even though we're, they were different churches in different cities. And you see this concern that Epaphras has, not just for his, uh, the city of Colossae, but also Laodicea. And Paul says, hey, when you get this letter, Colossians, that we're reading, that I'm writing, give it to the Laodiceans and have them read it as well. And hey, we don't have this letter recorded in Scripture, but Paul sent a letter to the church at Laodicea, right? And he says, hey, go ahead and read their letter as well. 
And you just see this, this, this unity of, of they have the same message, they worship the same God, and they were together on the same mission. And then you read a little bit more about the church of Laodicea in Revelation, which, I mean, I encourage you, I'm actually in Revelation right now in my personal daily reading, so I'm about to, to get there as well. But Paul mentions this specific person in Laodicea, Nympha, okay? Just like the church of Colossae met in Philemon's house, so the church in Laodicea met in this person, Nympha's house. Now, most translations render this person a girl, right? They say the church that is in her house, okay? In, in, in the Greek, if you put an S on the end of the word, it becomes male all of a sudden, and it means bridegroom. And so the King James and the New King James will render that his house. And so for whatever that's worth, I'm going, there's no S as far as I can tell on the Greek word, and so I'm going with the girl, Nympha. She's a girl in Laodicea, and the church meets in her house. Pretty cool stuff, all right? So, Archippus, last person. Everybody say that. I think of hippopotamus. I don't know why. It's all the, it's all the peas in there. Say to Archippus, he's telling them, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. His name means master of the horse. So maybe his dad liked horses and was like, hey, my son, it's going to be a good horse master. Whatever that means, there's a theory. I believe that he is Philemon's son, actually, because when you read the letter to Philemon, Paul addresses him and he says, hey, to Philemon, to Aphia, our beloved sister, which is most likely Philemon's wife, and then he says, and to Archippus, my fellow soldier. And so it almost looks like Paul's addressing this family unit. Um, and, and so he might not be, there's a little bit of speculation, but I feel comfortable enough to say that he's probably Philemon's son. But to, um, in any way, uh, he is a, probably a young servant, at the church in Laodicea, because the context in which he's mentioned, Paul is referring to the Laodiceans. And so he is most likely maybe from Colossae, but then he is serving in Laodicea. And he's probably a young minister in the church. And all the concrete information we really have about him is that Paul says, hey, tell this guy, he has a ministry that he's been called to. Fulfill it. Give yourself to it. Now we can see this two ways. We can see this as like a rebuke that Paul is saying, hey, bro, get on it. Like, you've been given a ministry, like, get to it. Or this could just be a simple encouragement that Paul is known to give Timothy and Titus when he says, hey, study to show yourself approved. Do the work of an evangelist and other exhortations like that. That could just be what Paul's doing here, that he's telling this young minister, hey, you've received, he's reminding him, he's preaching the truth to him. He's saying, hey, you've received a ministry of the Lord. Do it, fulfill it, give yourself to it. And church, I want to say that to you. I want to say that to myself as well. Some of you feel like you've been called to a specific ministry that God has given you. And I want to say, man, give yourself to that, to the glory of God as His grace carries you. But for many of us, we're like, well, I don't know if I have a specific ministry. What is my ministry? And for the rest of us, I would say, man, we all have the ministry of loving each other, of serving one another, of ministering the gospel and making disciples. Come on. That's our calling, to make disciples. We've all been given that ministry. If you're married, if you've got kids, man, you have the ministry of loving your wife, of loving your husband, of raising your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's a lot of ministry. And I just want to tell you, church, take heed to the ministry you've received in the Lord. Fulfill it. Give yourself to it. Don't neglect it, church. So we see all of these people, okay? And, and not just Archippus, but we see the roles and the ministries that all of these names 
in Scripture have, whether it's a Tychicus who's just available to just be sent and to travel and to go where Paul needs him, or Nympha who's just allowing and hosting the church to meet at her house. Whoever it is, all these people had a ministry and they were partnering in the gospel. So let's wrap it up. We have reached the end. Hey, you made it. You made it. Paul says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. So Paul just giving them a little bit more assurance. And if you're reading through this and the book of Philemon, you notice these kind of subtle things that Paul communicates to his audience, right? And this is one where he's just once again, just uh, showing concern and giving them a little bit of assurance. Like, hey, it's me writing this letter. No one's forging this. No one else is doing this in my name. It's me. So giving them a little bit of assurance there. But the main thing I think that he says is remember my imprisonment. And this, I think, echoes back to even, again, to chapter 1, where Paul's like, man, I'm suffering for your sake, that you might see Jesus in my sufferings, that you might know how loved you are, that you might understand the gospel, and that the gospel might go forth to you, and that you might make it known to others, and that I might continue ministering the gospel here. As we talked about last week, where Paul says, pray for me, that I might clearly communicate the gospel. He says, hey, Colossians, don't forget why I'm here Don't forget there's a cost. Don't forget why I'm suffering. Don't get complacent and comfortable. Don't don't just make my labor in vain because you kind of just putter out in your faith. Remember, and church, we in Fresno, California, most of us, I don't know, I I hope, not that I'm aware of, most of us don't have to suffer in this way for the gospel. But man, Every Friday, I get updates from Voice of the Martyrs of brothers and sisters by the thousands and hundreds and thousands and millions around this world who that is their daily experience. Their homes being destroyed by, you know, whether it's Boko Haram in Nigeria or uh, the Sudan or the Middle East or China, churches being shut down by the government, people in prison, people being killed. That's real. That's real. And church, I want to say to you, remember their sufferings. Don't just conclude, well, man, thanks God that I don't have to deal with that. I mean, yes, Lord, thank you for the freedom that we have, right? But remember the gospel they're suffering for, that it's worth suffering for. That some of these stories I'll read and it just breaks your heart and you're like, I don't know how they're still going. I don't know how they have that endurance. It's because the gospel is that good and oh, that we would recognize that and it would teach us to value it the same, to understand and to seek the things that are above, to seek, to understand the worth of Jesus, that he is worth being imprisoned for. And so Paul says, remember my imprisonment. And then his last word is grace be with you. The power that's gonna accomplish this, the power that ministered the gospel to you, that gave you the ability to be saved, that allows you to minister the gospel, that allows you to do the work, that allows you to persevere, to, per- to persevere, to persevere, that grace be with you. It is upon you. In Fresno Church, I want to say to you, grace be out with us. Grace be with you. It is in us. Let's believe that Christ is enough. And he has given us everything we need, man. And as we are on mission together, that we might minister the gospel effectively in Fresno, to our neighbors, and to wherever God calls us. Amen? Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.